All right, we are in Acts 17. Acts 17 is where we'll be today. In fact, we're going to be in Acts 17 for a few weeks because the chapter is just so full of lessons for us as the church in 2019. There's two lessons we want to learn today in Acts 17. Two things we want to see, two things. The apostles' approach to ministry and the apostles' ministry reputation. Those are the two things we want to take out of these first 10 verses of uh, Acts 17. The apostles' approach and the apostles' reputation. Both are very important for us individually and for us corporately as the body of Christ in Poe Mill, the body of Christ at Griggs. And so we're going to see their approach. We're going to see their reputation through their ministry in a church called Thessalonica. If uh, you're... Um, used to the Bible, you've read some of the Bible, you probably recognize this word Thessalonica. In fact, there are two books in your Bible written to the church that we will see established today in Acts 17. Later, Paul wrote two letters to them, first and second Thessalonians, and they're in the New Testament of the Bible. And we'll see through their ministry in Thessalonica, their approach to ministry and the reputation that they earned. But for those of you who are newer to our series, we're going through the book of Acts, line by line, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And for those of you who don't know, the book of Acts is basically our history book. It's the history book of the church, right? Welcome to church. We've been doing this 2,000 years. We're a pretty well-established organization. We're global. Everyone is welcome. Uh, but how did this start? Well, that's what the book of Acts is about. It's a history book of the early church. Uh, the early church and our church, we believe in a guy named Jesus. We worship a guy named Jesus because he's not just a guy. He is the God-man, the second member of the Trinity. He comes from heaven to earth to show the way. He lives the perfect, sinless life. He dies on a cross in our place for our sins as a substitutionary atonement. He then rises from death, defeating death, and he ascends to heaven back on the throne he came from. Before he ascends to heaven in the book of Acts, he talks to his followers, we call them the 12 apostles, and he says, I got a mission for you and for the people who will believe in me. And that is that you will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, come inside you, live with you, and empower you to bring this good news that man can be right with God through the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is about those guys and the early church fulfilling that mission. It's a mission we're still on 2,000 years later. The book of Acts is about them bringing the good news, the love of Christ, the goodness of God, the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, in the book of Acts, we see that these early disciples and apostles did this through something we call missionary journeys. So they were going town to town, city to city. They'd come in with this new covenant, this new testament. They'd preach the gospel to people, get them saved, show them how to live like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, gather them up, establish some leaders, and start a local church. And then they'd move on to the next city, to the next town, missionary journeys. We've already seen Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And where we are in Acts 17, this is Paul and Silas, new guy, on the second missionary journey. 
a little review. Second missionary journey has been crazy. Right? I mean, it's been like it's been like driving through Woodruff Road right, on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, this has been full of stops and, and difficulty and your wife yelling at you. It's been full of all that. And the idea is they've been trying to go through Asia. The Holy Spirit keeps closing the door until finally the Holy Spirit in his goodness and in his time opens a door and it's in Europe. It's in a city called Philippi. You may have heard that word because there's a book in your Bible called the book of Philippians. Paul later writes to Philippi where he starts a church. After Philippi, we catch up with him today in Acts 17. He goes about 94 miles north to a place called Thessalonica. That's where we're at. So he's on the second missionary journey, and he's on the second stop in Europe. And here's what we find. Look at Acts 17, verse 1. It says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, you say, are you, are you pronouncing that right? I have no idea. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, let's stop here in this introductory verse to kind of get our bearings on this story that we're going to look at today and on the truth we're going to find today, uh, because there's some stuff in this that we just need to just recalibrate on. Why did they pass through these two towns to get to Thessalonica? Well, it's because, very likely, in these two towns, Amphipolis and Apollonia, yeah, whatever that is, right, there was not a synagogue. They weren't big enough to have enough Jewish folks in these cities this far away from Jerusalem to have a synagogue. Thessalonica, however, was a massive city. Think like New York City, big. Thus, they would have had a melting pot of lots of different kinds of people, including Jewish people, and those Jewish people would have had a synagogue. Thessalonica was a seaport town. Lots of things came in, lots of things went out in trade. It was on a massive road like in the middle of one of the longest roads ever to exist between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, big road that Rome built called the Via Ignatia, right? And it's right in the middle of two sides of the kingdom. So lots of people coming in, lots of people going out. This means it had a booming economy, lots of jobs. In fact, we find in 1 Thessalonians, Paul himself when he first arrives to Thessalonica, had gotten a job so that he could feed himself and clothe himself while he's waiting to get to the synagogue to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. Eventually he does get to the synagogue as we read in Acts 17. So here's the question that follows. Okay, He skips town, two towns, to get to Thessalonica so he can get to the synagogue. He works his way through life until he's invited into the synagogue. Why did he have to go to the synagogue? Why, why was that important to Paul? Well, this was Paul's chief strategy. Right? This was what he thought, would, this is how he was to carry out the mission of reaching the ends of the earth is that he would go to cities large enough to have a synagogue, reach people for Christ, and later the believers in that city would reach those smaller towns around them. The synagogue would have been this perfect place to preach the New Testament glorious, wonderful gospel. Because the synagogue, a couple things, one, would have allowed him to speak. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul's done some street preaching in the book of Acts. Like, he's not past going into the town square and just belting it out like a crazy man. He'll do that. He's not worried about that. But he likes to be invited to speak because he wants an audience who will have ears to hear. And in the synagogue in that day, they would invite 
visiting preachers to come up and to speak. And Paul had the credentials of a Jewish rabbi from his past life. And so as he came into town and introduced himself, eventually he would be asked to speak in the synagogue. And what they thought he was going to teach was the Old Testament. And he did teach the Old Testament. But he had this ulterior motive to use the Old Testament to prove that there was a new one that had come. He was using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Messiah the Old Testament was saying would come. And so this idea of Paul's is to get to the synagogue, there's people waiting for a Messiah, tell them the Messiah had come, some will believe, take them out of the synagogue, form a church in someone's home, then use those core believers to reach Gentiles, bring the Gentiles into the church, the church will grow, and then they can reach the little towns around the major city that he is in. This is Paul's strategy. And I think we miss how massive of an undertaking this is. Uh, imagine, and it's, it's almost impossible to imagine this. It's very hard to imagine this. But imagine that you were the only Christian in Greenville. Imagine that all these churches on all these corners, just all of a sudden, they, they were just not there. There were 7-Elevens. Right? Plenty of Slurpees, no gospel. And you come into town and you realize there's a mosque, there's a synagogue, there's a temple, there's all these things. No Christians, no church. And the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, start a church. What would you do? This is a massive undertaking. I mean, it's not that there's bad churches in Philipp, uh, Thessalonica. It's not that there's old churches in Thessalonica. It's not that there's false churches in Thessalonica. There's literally no church in Thessalonica. So Paul's strategy is to go to where people believe the Old Testament Bible, prove to them a New Testament has come, and start a church through the synagogue. What would your approach be? Well, we can't follow Paul's approach exactly. Like, I'm not telling you to go down to the synagogue, right, pretend to be a rabbi, get invited to speak, right, uh, lie about knowing Hebrew, and then, like, preach some rogue sermon. Okay, don't do that. And if you do that, don't tell me you're from Griggs, okay? Tell them you're from, I don't know, tell me from Grace, North Hill, somewhere like that, okay? Uh, but I, no, tell me from New Spring, right? That'll be funny. And Newspring would be like, yeah, do that. We love Newspring. But here's the idea is, just tell me from somewhere else. But that's not what I'm saying. But here's something really interesting. In this massive undertaking, in this massive undertaking, through the synagogue outreach, there are some things about the apostles' approach that we can learn from in 2019 that we must do and must learn from and must act on in 2019. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, it says, And Paul, as his manner was, right, this is his approach, he went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus who I preach to you, is Christ. 
In these two verses, these two packed verses, I see Paul's approach as totally something we can replicate today in 2019. In fact, I'll just tell you what I see. I see at least three things in this approach. I'd say that A, this is a reasonable approach. The Bible says that he goes in for three Sabbath days. He reasons with them out of the scriptures. Do you know what it means to reason with someone? It's like an argument without the heat. It's like it's like uh, Facebook comments only without the angry emojis. Right? There is a debate, but it is not being taken personal. It's reason. It's reasonable. So he argues with them to be sure, but he doesn't cram it down their throat. Now, to us, that seems like something that's kind of a social no duh. But you have to remember the striking humility in Paul as he reasons with these people, right? Because Paul's got multiple degrees in the Old Testament, okay? He has studied under a guy named Gamaliel, the top scholar in Jerusalem. He's a Pharisee of Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, most of the Old Testament memorized. He knows more than they do. He knows way more than they do. And yet he doesn't act like it. He, he, he is, what we would say, we wouldn't say it this way, but this is the actual word for it. He is condescending. You say, condescending? I hate people who are condescending. I know, yes. Right? But there was actually, a long, long time ago, a positive side to that word. And it was the idea of someone in power not acting like they had a bunch of power, just acting like they were one of everybody else. Someone with wealth not acting like they were really wealthy and too good for everybody, but condescending, like ignoring the status where they were given in society to be just one with everyone, to have dialogue and discussion. He's condescending. He's saying, I, I got a PhD. I know Hebrew. I know the Old Testament better than all you guys out here in Thessalonica, but let's take some time and go through this. Right? I'm not just going to come in, pull out my authority, and make you bow to Christ. I'll be reason, reasonable with you. This is like Jesus. If anybody condescended to men of low estate, it was Jesus. Right? He, 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 he's God, becomes a man. I mean, if, the, if you give that a minute, you'll see. I mean, this, he gives up power. He gives up placement. He gives up a throne to come be a peasant, to teach people things. And people argue back with Jesus all the time in the New Testament. And it's, he never is crushing them with his words. He explains things. He tells stories and illustrations to get his point across. But he doesn't smash them like, hey, did you just... Did you just disagree with me? You know I'm God, right? Lightning bolt. Doom. Like, he didn't do that. Right? He was reasonable. I see patience in this. Humility, I see patience in this reasonableness. I mean, it says he, he's with him three Sabbath days. Now, that's not that long of a time, but I think the idea here is that after three Sabbath days, he's kicked out of town, as you'll see at the end of the story. And I think the idea here is it, three Sabbath days is what he had, but he would have taken five. He would have taken ten. I mean, he's a patient preacher, like Jesus. Nobody more patient with us than Jesus. I want you to know this this morning. Jesus is patient with you. Jesus is the most patient person to ever exist. I mean, Jesus did hundreds of miracles before the disciples figured out he was God. And he didn't tease them at all. Right? Like, I mean, think about that for a second. Right? Like after like the 30th blind dude walks away with sight, they're like, I think you're God. He's like, that's a good deduction. Gold star on the chart, blue ribbon. 
You get to be the line leader, Peter. You're right. I am God. Was it walking on the water? Was it calming the storm? Was it the water into wine thing? Which one was it that tipped you off to the fact that I'm not a regular dude? He didn't say anything like this. He's patient with them. They flee when he gets on the cross for them. He rises again and comes back to them in his patience. God is patient with us this morning. He is patient and reasonable with his people. I mean, there are things, if I had to guess, if your life is anything, anything like my life, there are things that God has been trying to teach you for years that just have not gotten through to you. Your wife knows the lesson you need to learn. Trust me, right? Your kids probably know, your coworkers know, your friends know the lesson you need to learn, but you're still wondering, why is my life like this? And God's up there just another day, teach him again, teach him again, and eventually he'll get it. He's patient with us. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. And Paul is following this rule from Jesus' playbook. He is patient with them. He is going back and forth, answering questions. He's not like a salesman selling a timeshare, trying to get him to sign on the dotted line. He's like a friend trying to persuade a friend. I want you to understand this this morning. In our approach to ministry, we can be reasonable because we have a reasonable faith. Our faith, just the gospel we have in and of itself, it is not as crazy as it sounds. There are parts of it that are crazy, right? like God-loving sinners. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But there's a lot of it that's just incredibly reasonable. I mean, have you ever found his body? Have you ever? I mean, why is his tomb empty? The most famous person that ever lived, killed by the biggest power on earth, the Roman Empire, under professional security, like they would give the president, and after the weekend, they can't find him? Three days? The stone? Where how'd that get moved? That thing was sealed. I mean, what is going on? I mean, there's a lot of reason in what we believe. So we can be reasonable with our faith. We do not have to attack people with the gospel. This week, I'm going up to preach uh, in North Carolina to 100 junior hires, right? So I'll just be drinking coffee from now till Wednesday when that starts because I just got to get my... I forgot. Last year I went up there and, and about 10 minutes into the sermon, I'm seeing all these kids like talking. I'm like, man, I forgot how much of a circus you got to be to keep this the attention, right? And so I'm going up to preach to junior hires this week for the Presbyterians. Look, the Presbyterians love me and I love them. They're nice folks, right? Kind of quiet, but nice, right? And... And I'm going up there to preach the gospel to these kids. And let me tell you what I don't have to do. I don't have to go up there and scream about hell for three days. Yeah, there is the wrath of God. Yeah, there is punishment for the wicked. Right? But I don't have to go up there with vivid, terrifying imagery, sermon after sermon, and, and, and crush them into coming down an aisle sometime. I don't have to emotionally assault them so that they'll say yes to Jesus because the gospel in and of itself has power. And part of the gospel is that we're saved from destruction, to be sure, but we do not have to use it as some weapon to somehow force the gospel into people. We can be reasonable. 
We can ask and answer questions. We can deal with doubt. We can come at it from different angles. We can discuss science and history and life and death and why and why not and what if. We can talk about these things because our faith it will answer for itself. It's a reasonable faith. We don't have to be pushy with the gospel. The guy out back, I was talking to him recently, lives right here in the parking lot. Awesome dude. I was like, hey, do you know Jesus? Just felt led by the Spirit to ask. I mean, he lives in the parking lot of a church. I feel like if no one asks him about Jesus, we're, we're a really bad church. <laughs> like, if you get to heaven and Jesus is like, did anybody ever tell you the gospel? No. Where'd you live? Back at Griggs? Well, that's messed up. All right? So I was like, hey, do you know Jesus? He's like, well, I'm an agnostic. Now, here's the deal. He doesn't know this, and most people don't even know this. Most people think I'm wrong on this. This is actually true. Agnostics, they believe that there's a God, but you can't know him. Right? There is a higher power somewhere out there, but there's no way man could ever communicate with this God, right? Okay, when in, and, and we love agnostics. We praise God you know, that we get a chance to speak with them. We pray for them. We go to lunch with them. We, you know, right? We're not dogging on it, but here's the idea. If you, if you say this, right, God's a higher power, never know him. What you're saying is that you are the source of supreme knowledge, right? God's a supreme being, and you have figured out the supreme fact about him that he is unknowable. So you would deny that there's a Bible, 66 books, 3,500 manuscripts, 1,500 years of time, 40 different authors that all agree that can't be real, but my thought on God is fact. So they're calling themselves the supreme authority. They're calling themselves the Bible. But you know when he said that to me in the parking lot? I did not say that. I wasn't like, you idiot. Come to church. We have donuts and coffee for morons like you. Right? I would not even think that, let alone say that. In fact, I think this guy's a smart guy. Right? I don't think he's any worse than me. I don't think I'm any better than him. I didn't say that because I have a reasonable faith. We talked about Christians. He said he had some tough experiences with Christians in his past. I said, shocker. Right? Same here, bro. Right? But I said, well, I'm not trying to drive you into Christians. I'm trying to drive you into Christ. And I just challenged him to think about Jesus separate from some of the bad experiences he's had with Jesus' people. And I said, we'll talk again. See, we, we can be like Paul. Paul's three Sabbath days. He's got a PhD. He's got, he's got degrees. He's got knowledge beyond knowledge. He's seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. He's healed people. He's seen people rise from death in the name of Jesus. But he's reasoning back and forth with the people of Thessalonica. Our approach to ministry is one that is reasonable. I see another thing in this approach, knowledge. We're reasonable, but we should be knowledgeable. So we got A, reasonable, B, knowledgeable. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. Let's read back through this and note this. Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, alleging opening and alleging that Christ needed to suffer, rise again from the dead. Stop there. So where do you get knowledge in this? Well, he's reasoning with them on a very difficult issue, on a very big question for these people, a very difficult point that he had to make. See, these people of the synagogue of Thessalonica, like all Jews at this time, thought that Christ whoever he was going to be, the Messiah, the Savior that the Old, promise, the Old Testament promised to come, whoever that was going to be, would, would be a military general, right? He would not die. He would do the killing. And then Jesus comes and says he is the Messiah, and he is killed. And so they thought there's no way that's the Messiah, 
right? Of course, they're not taking into account that he killed Satan, sin, and death, right? Like no military general ever could. But so they had this huge issue with this, that Christ would suffer, that a Messiah from God would die, that he would have to be buried. And so Paul is actually taking on one of their biggest questions. Once you know, the world outside of the church is asking a lot of hard questions, and we should seek to answer them with the Bible. I believe that the Bible is sufficient for all the questions that come up in life, no matter how difficult they are. Paul is reasoning on this difficult point, this difficult issue with them out of their own scriptures, the Old Testament of the Bible. I see him opening a scroll, or Isaiah, by getting to chapter 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. And like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he would explain that that was about the Messiah. If that's not about the Messiah, who is that that would take the iniquity of us all? Who is it that is not a sheep like us going astray, but noble and good and able to give us peace with his punishment? He would open their scrolls and teach them the Old Testament. He knew their Bible better than they did. He was knowledgeable. And that teaches us that he studied. You don't have to freak out about sharing your faith, living on mission. If you will freak out about learning your faith. I think it's, I I mean, my dream as a pastor is for everyone in this church, front to back, young to old, new Christian to been Christian forever, if if you would just learn what you believe and why you believe it to the point where you could explain that to others, you'd have a huge advantage in helping others receive the love and mercy and grace of Jesus. Like, you should be able to explain gospel. Gospel, good news. Good news is that Jesus dies for sin, rises from death, so that we're forgiven, we're rising from death as well one day, and we'll go to heaven, right? Gospel, good news. We're getting saved. Saved means regenerated. The idea that we are given a new heart, forgiven sin, righteous heart, Holy Spirit coming inside. Justification, that we're declared not guilty for our sins because of what he did on the cross. These ideas, we got to learn our faith. We have to learn how to explain and articulate our faith. There, there, there's, there is a sense in which knowledge puffs up. There's also the sense in which knowledge is a tool to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, was a, he studied the Bible. I want you to study the Bible. He knew their Bible better than they did. I want you to know the Bible better than your culturally Christian neighbor here in the South. And I know what you're thinking. Like, well, he trained up under these prominent leaders. We don't have time to go to seminary. Well, I'll tell you this. You have better than a seminary professor living inside you. You have a teacher called the Holy Spirit. He inspired the Bible, and right now he is in heaven illuminating the Bible to those who will seek him with all their heart. Particularly, this is interesting and something to note, shameless plug, by the way, here it comes, right? Particularly, the Holy Spirit teaches us the Bible when we're with each other. See, the Holy Spirit teaches the Bible. You say, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is inside of 
Christians. So if you want the Holy Spirit to illuminate something in the Bible for you, the best place to go is to a Christian. And this is why we do Griggs groups. In fact, we're starting our Griggs groups tonight. Griggs groups, we got three guys groups, three girls groups. One of those is a college group for guys, college group for girls. We got older guys, younger guys, two women's groups. I will not call them older and younger, right? Because that is a sin. And so we got groups and we're going to study passages. We're studying in Acts 17, going through the passage. And the cool thing is, is that when people with the Holy Spirit get together and they start talking about the Bible, the Holy Spirit guides and leads and teaches them to learn the Bible. We give time to what's important to us, do we not? I remember when I got to school, freshman year, 2006. I got up to my room and there was a guy there named Chet Bednar. He's our worship leader to this day here at Griggs. And let me just tell you, the animals going into the ark did not wait as long as I waited for Chet to get out in front, from out in front of the mirror. Spent a lot of time in front of the mirror back then. Spent a lot of time going through my clothes in my closet because he wanted to look like me. We spend a lot of time curating ourselves, looking good, our reputation, our social media posts, making sure that we're looking good. We spend a lot of time because those things are important to us, how we present ourselves. How we present our faith should be infinitely more important because eternity is on the line. It should take you sacrificial amounts of time to learn the Bible. It should take time you were thinking about giving to something of less importance. You see, he was knowledgeable. And last but not least, I want to tell you this, too, on this idea of his approach. He's confrontational, verse 17. I'm sorry, Acts 17, verse 3 is what I meant. And we see this one more time. It says this, opening alleging that Christ needed to suffer, risen from the dead, but then he gets confrontational at the end of verse 3. Acts 17, verse 3, he says, and this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ. What does that mean? For those of you who are new to the faith, let me explain something to you in case you don't know. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. And the word Christ means Messiah. The word Messiah means the one who saves, the one chosen to save his people. And that word Christ, in and of itself, demands exclusivity. Right? There could be 12 disciples, but there are not 12 Christs. If you know the word Christ and the title that that is, that makes no sense. Right? There's not a Christ here and this Christ there. That idea of Christ is not a Savior, the Savior. He is Jesus, the Savior. And as Christians, this is what we preach. And it is incredibly confrontational. It is incredibly confronting. As gentle as we try to be, as reasonable as we try to be, as patient as we try to be, at the end of the day, we are saying that all men and women across this globe come to a fork in the road when they are confronted with Jesus and they either go with him or against him. They either believe or do not believe. They either bow the knee or deny him. Jesus is the Christ. Amen? Amen. It is a confrontational message. Never forget that we worship a guy who got murdered. Not because 
He was helping old ladies across the street because he was saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one's getting to the Father except through me. As Christians, we bring a fork in the road. And when you get to the fork, you can go one or two ways. And we're very confrontational in this matter. This is why we will never fully fit in in this world as Christians. Now, I'm not saying that we should purposefully be odd, right? Like go downtown with some really offensive sign, churn your own butter so you're not like the world. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying in just our message, we will be odd enough. And just our message, we will be, we'll stick out like a sore thumb. Just our message alone will do it. You don't have to add to it. We come with a fork in the road. We say, are you going to be with him or against him? Believe or disbelieve? Are you going to accept or deny him? And there are many who will deny him. There are many who will believe, but there are many who will say no thanks. There are many who will thank him. There are many, however, that we will never quite fit in with because we provide this confrontation in our message. That's what's in the text. Look at the text. I mean, here's what we'll see. Some believe, because some do believe. That's why we preach the gospel. Many believe even. About one-third so far of the world today, right now, as we speak, in some way, claims Christianity. Many, if not most of them, are Christians and do believe in Jesus. Lots of people believe in Jesus. Look at verse 4. We see an example of this. Acts 17, verse 4, some of them believed, right? And they consorted. They joined up with Paul and Silas on their mission. The devout Greeks, a great multitude, lots of the Gentiles, and a chief women, not a few. So in Thessalonica, a lot of the powerful positions were held at this time by women who believed in God of the Old Testament. They come here, Paul of the New Testament, and the leaders of the city, these women, meet Jesus, get saved. So one thing that is illustrated by the writer of Acts, a guy named Luke, in this verse is he's saying, you preach the gospel, but don't think you know who's coming down the aisle. Don't think you know who's going to get saved. I mean, it's all kinds of people that come to Christ. Yes, some of the Jews came to Christ, but also some of the rich and powerful ladies who run this town came to Christ. Some of the Gentiles from pagan backgrounds came to Christ. You cannot figure, it's not like you have some... I don't bingo board, right? You can't predict like, oh, you know, this will line up this way and we'll win that guy to Christ. You have no idea who's going to believe or disbelieve. But here's what you do know. Many do believe. And then some do not believe. Look at verse five. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy and they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Right. Now, that is a biker gang, if I ever heard of one, right? Uh, we belong to lewd fellows. What's your team? All right, so lewd fellows of the baser sort. King James is trying to say bad dudes, evil dudes, evil men. And he gathered a company and set all the city in uproar and assaulted the house of Jason. Sought to bring them out to the people. Do you see the confrontation? You see that fork in the road now? Last night, I'm sitting on my porch, and I'm drinking tea and wishing that insects did not exist. 
I'm on the porch, I'm drinking tea, and I'm reading through this passage, and I'm sitting here like, nobody after this message in the synagogue on that third week can just sit down and have tea together. The people who believed, they're not like, oh, that's, that's neat, Paul. Let's go have some tea. No, they're like, this is true. We have to abandon ourselves, pick up our cross, deny ourselves, follow you. We have to get on mission. The Bible says they consorted with Paul and Silas. They joined the church. They changed their lives. Those who did not believe were not like, ah, you know, agreed to disagree, but later we're going to come over and have some tea. They were like, you're abandoning the synagogue? You're abandoning our principles? You're leaving our faith for a new one? You believe a Nazarene carpenter rose from the dead? No, this is not, this is not agree to disagree. This is a turf war. In fact, they indeed go and hire a gang to act as hitmen. I mean, look at verse 5 again. They took unto them evil men and gathered companies, set the city in uproar, which means they gathered a mob to go assault the house of Jason. And bring Paul, and what they're trying to do is bring Paul and uh, Silas out to the people. So they literally go hire a gang, bring them to this newly opened church that was in some guy named Jason's house. Say, who's Jason? We don't know. Poor guy just had a house. This is his housewarming party. Rival gang, led by the Jewish guys who don't believe in Jesus, coming down to try to destroy this new church, mob it to death. And here's one kind of not so funny, kind of funny problem. The church was not in session that day. I guess they forgot that the church meets on Sundays. <laughs> this is Saturday, bro. We're out at the market. We're under grace. We don't have to be in all day. Look at verse 6. It says, when they found them not. That's kind of funny. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to say the Bible's purposely being funny, but I mean, the image is kind of funny, right? You get a mob together of 100 people. You knock on the door. And it's like, ah, oh, they're not home. We come back tomorrow. It's all good. You guys got tomorrow? Yeah, we 10. 11? Okay. Right, like, yes, just, just kind of, they didn't find, nobody was there. They're like, ah! Oh, that was so anticlimactic. But they drew Jason and certain brethren out to the rulers of the city. So they break down the door. No one's there except for a few guys sitting on the couch watching ESPN. They're like, well, it's not really cool for us to kill them because these aren't really the guys, but. I'm sure they're part of this thing. So they forcefully drag them out to the SUV, drive them down to the courthouse, throw them down on the floor in front of the magistrates. And I'm sure, like Jason and these few guys who just happened to be home that day are like, what did we do? What's your charge? What's the accusation here? I was on the couch. Like, what? And then they see very quickly, it wasn't necessarily what they did is the reputation they held. So we see the apostles approach. We see the apostles' reputation. Here's what you did. You turned the world upside down. Look at verse 6 and 7. It says, when they found them not, they drew Jason, certain brethren, to the city, the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down have come here also, whom Jason has received Right, he started that Thessalonican church in this house, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And, spoiler alert, there is another king, a higher king, a king of kings, and his name indeed is Jesus. So what did you do, Jason? What did you guys do, random other people at the house on Saturday? What did you guys do? Oh, you confronted us with a new king, 
a new way of living, a new way of life, a new covenant, a new testament, saying that there was a chance to be a new creation, heading to a new heaven and a new earth, and you have turned the world upside down. This is the powerful effect of Christianity. You see the world one way, then someone tells you about Jesus, your mom, preacher, dude on TV, reading a book, you find out about Jesus, and then boom! You understand the world in a whole new way. Turns the world upside down. These believers turn the world upside down. What a beautiful reputation. What a... what. Uh, a wonderful compliment. I want you to know, at Griggs, this is the reputation that we seek. We want to be a church that turns the world upside down. We want to turn the neighborhood upside down. If this is the reputation that we get from those outside of the faith, then we have lived our faith well. Because indeed... We've actually turned the world right side up. I mean, let's break this down. Think about this with me, okay? They're talking about Jesus being king. So Jesus is the king. Jesus creates the world, right? We see this in John chapter 1. Word was with God. Word was God. All things were created through him, by him, through all things created, right? And he's making the world, and he makes it beautiful, perfect, right side up. The serpent desires to be king. So he tempts Adam and Eve with sin, they oblige, they plunge us into sin as a human race, and the curse comes from the lawgiver, for he is just, and the world flipped upside down. Man was supposed to enjoy work in the garden. Now he has to eat by the sweat of his brow. The woman was supposed to enjoy her gift of motherhood. Now it has become very painful. Other parts as well of the curse show us everything's topsy-turvy. Everything's upside down from Genesis 3 on. But we have a benevolent king, a loving king, a good king, and a kind king. And we see he begins to turn his kingdom right side up again. He sends a law. He sends the prophets. And eventually he completes the turn by himself coming into human history. God the Son takes on flesh. He comes to the world he made, the world that Satan flipped. He comes to the womb of a virgin teenage girl in a hick town called Nazareth. He grows up as a carpenter's son and begins to teach at the age of 30, and he totally turns the world upside down. If the world was upside down, now it's right side up through Jesus. He begins to speak, and everybody freaks out because it's the exact opposite of everything they held dear and true. They thought that those who were first must be blessed by God. He said, you're probably first because you're putting others last. The first will be last, last will be first. They thought you get to God through works of the law, works of religion, good works. He said, you come to God through me by faith. They believed that their riches were a sign that God was blessing them, no matter what lifestyle they were living. And he said, actually, the rich are far from God in this generation, and the poor are the ones who are seeing their need and coming to him. They thought the religious leaders were right with God. 
Jesus came and said, no, the sinners can be right with God. They thought the Messiah was going to come and kill their enemies. He says, I'm the Messiah, and you've got it all wrong. I've come to be killed for my enemies. They thought that the point of life was this life. He said the point of life is a life that's coming after this life. They thought the point of life was to savor it. He said he who loses his life will find it. They believed, blessed are the proud in spirit. He preached, blessed are the poor in spirit. They thought the Messiah would come for those in the temple. He hung out with the drunks and the prostitutes and the addicts and those who were full of sin, but yet would repent of sin. They thought there'd only be one coming of the Messiah. He said there'd be two comings of the Messiah. The first one happened. Hallelujah. The second one is soon to happen. Hallelujah. They thought that the the Messiah would would come and he would... (laughs) basically make Israel prominent and and the leader of the world. And he came to build a kingdom that was actually established in the hearts of Israel and Gentiles all over the world. They, at least the Sadducees, thought there was no resurrection of the dead. He came and resurrected from the dead. I mean, everything he taught, everything he did turned the world upside down. But hear me, if it was upside down to begin with, what Jesus really did and what Jesus really does is he turns it right side up. Another word for this is redemption. Another word for this is restoration. See, it seems upside down to the people who love this world, but to those of us who will hate sin, to those of us who hate hatred, who love kindness, who love righteousness, who worship God, we see this as the redemption of the world. We are turning the world right side up. Jesus says it this way, he makes all things new. So as a church, we're busy on this mission to turn this world right side up. Do you know a single mom? Stressed? Lonely? No mom was ever meant to go through motherhood alone. That's upside down. You go live the gospel in front of her. Teach her the gospel. Help her. Give her a night out and turn her world right side up. Amen? You know someone with suicidal thoughts? Depression, thinks that they're not supposed to be here, that the world would be better without them, that's upside down. You were created for infinite joy. You know someone who's depressed? Go, give them encouragement, help them get to the counselor, do whatever it takes to get them better, and turn their world right side up. Do you know someone in false religion? We were never meant to be confused on who God is. We were meant to walk in relationship with God. So we go and we love them and help them and teach them that Jesus is the way, the truth, their life, and they, we turn their world right side up. Our neighborhood is known for addiction. If you talk to the police that patrol around here, they will tell you that so many of the drugs in Greenville come in our neighborhood and out of our neighborhood. Lots of addiction issues. As a church, we are to be turning that right side up. That's upside down. We promote Miracle Hill as much as we can. We will pay for your application fees to the rehab program. We will do anything to help break you free. When those kids come on our van, we tell them, we should tell them, do not touch drugs and alcohol. Do not mess with addiction. 
Because our goal is to turn this neighborhood right side up because we love them, and Jesus does too. That's what we're to be about. That's what we're to be busy doing. This is the application of the message. We want you to be reasonable, knowledgeable. We want you to be confrontational, but not confrontational for the sake of confrontational, for the sake of love. Loving people enough to help turn the world right side up for them. This was the apostles' approach. This was the apostles' reputation. And by God's grace, it'll be our approach and our reputation here at Griggs. So as the musicians come up to sing a few more songs, let me just ask you some questions. If you're here without Jesus, I want you to know this. Your world is upside down. Will you come to Jesus for redemption? Will you come to Jesus for restoration and let him turn your world right side up? If, if you're here and your world is upside down and you need prayer, if you need anything, let us know. Because that's what we're here to do, and that's what we want to do, is turn the world, your world, right side up. If you're here and you're a Christian, but you have not been really doing anything, <laughs> not that our faith is based on what we do, but because our faith is based on who we know, Jesus, we want to act like, talk like, walk like, live like Jesus, maybe it's time for you to rededicate your life to turning this world upside down in his name and for his glory. Maybe you need to work on some of the things we talked about, reasonableness, knowledgeableness, the willingness to confront someone in love with the truth of Jesus. What do you need to work on? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. And as we sing, you want you to belt it out. But sometime, if you need to, I want you to quietly pray where you stand about these things. If you're a non-believer, I want you to come talk to me after the service. I want to talk about that. If you're hurting, I want to come talk to me after the service. I want to talk about that. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to repent. We're going to party. We're going to thank God. And we're going to try to change because this world needs us to change. Because this world needs change. Let's turn the world upside down. Go ahead and stand up.